Yeah, Jesus. Jesus, come to this place. Fill us with your spirit. God, we, we just want to prepare our hearts, God. We just want to be a place where your spirit can rest, God. You call us your temple. God, you say that your spirit dwells in us. And God, I just pray that you would, God, that you would just come and speak tenderly to your children. We love you, God. Thank you that we are truly wonderful in your presence, God. That you don't see our sin. Thank you, Father. Well, I grew up in a little Baptist church. And uh, I'll tell you what, I, I hated going to church. It was, it was so boring. I'd have to sit there, and my mom would always put on this sweater on me, and I had a collar shirt underneath, so it was just boiling hot. And I had this bowl cut and a side part. I don't know how that even works, but I had that. And the pastor was so boring, and I would just try to make my brothers laugh. That was my goal. I would actually keep score in my head for every laugh that I'd get. And my dad would, I don't know how he did it, but one time he just had too much. There was this lady that sat in front of us, and she sang and sounded exactly like a goat. You know what I'm talking about? She just had the most goat voice. So I started imitating her, and my brothers lost it. And uh, yeah, I won, and my, my prize was a spanking. So my dad picked me up. Remember, this is the 80s. This is the 80s, and this is just kind of how you dealt with things in the 80s. So my dad picked me up, and I thought, in front of everybody here, this entire huge congregation of 30 people, I'm going to call out my dad. And so as I'm getting carried out, I yelled to everybody, I'm about to get a spanking, thinking this is going to shame him into changing his behavior. It didn't. Everyone cheered. They're like, like yeah, get that little punk out of here. Probably that goat lady was like, leave. <laughs> I had a love-hate relationship with the church. So we moved to a new town, and I remember the first time I, I walked into that place, and we sat there, and there was 200 people. And I remember thinking, there's 200 Christians in the world? Oh, like, this is incredible what I'm witnessing. And then we sang the song, Our God Reigns, and 200 voices. It's seriously, I can remember that moment perfectly. It sent shivers down my spine. Just corporate worship. Just hearts united. This was a place where worship finally came alive for me. This was a place where the pastor spoke, and, and it, it's so strange. I can remember sermons from when I was in grade six. Like, the Holy Spirit was in that place. I remember he spoke about God being awesome, how he's the only one worthy of awe. These messages were, were put in me by the Spirit, and I'll never forget. The church can be so beautiful, but in that same place, a few years later, there was a church split, and my best friend's family started attending a church across town. And so I'd show up to church, and, and each week there'd be less and less of my friends. And I'd go to their houses, and, and their parents would just be talking in hushed tones. All of a sudden, things got real weird. I'd hear the names of our pastors, but it was always sort of in whispered, and it would always be just sort of like talking away, don't want to get the kids involved. And we're all thinking, what is going on here? Like, what is, what is this thing that's happening? When I went to Bible college, I vowed that I would never work in the church. I told them, I said, I will never be involved in the church. I said, if it's a church, it'll be in Sweden. Those were actually my words. I said, I'm going to go to the church, but it's going to be nowhere near North America. I had completely had it with the church. And, 
And I hear these sorts of things a lot that I used to think. I don't really need to go to church. My relationship with God is personal. I hear that a lot. It's just between me and God. Why do I need church? Or the church is a man-made invention. It's not God's idea. I've had it with organized religion. Have you guys heard that? Organized religion. It's this term that has so many negative undertones. Organized religion. And maybe you feel this way, or maybe you felt this way, or maybe sitting in this place, you're like, you know what, I, I've almost had it with church. Or maybe this was your last shot. You said, I'm going to go to church one more weekend, and then that's it. And then I'm done with it. And you know what, I think that these feelings are okay. And I actually think it's, it's normal. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, says this, disillusionment with the church and even with ourselves is a gift. Only that community which enters into the experience of great disillusionment with all its unpleasant and evil appearances begins to be community. Now, I love this church. I, I have been to churches all over the place, and I've never seen a church like this. Never. Like, from our youth, they just love Jesus to all of our families and our seniors that are just so full of wisdom and maturity and hearts of incredible love. Like, this church is very unique. This is the church where I learned that people can actually come to know Jesus. I actually witnessed in this place for the first time people coming to faith. Oh, being born again. This is the place where I've witnessed miracles. I get emails all the time saying, is anyone hiring in your church? Everyone wants to come here. I love this church, but I'm also deeply disillusioned with this church. I love it. But I believe that we're just scratching the surface on what God might have for us. I really think he's saying, I have so much for you. Let's go for it together. Let's do this. Come on. You see, we have great dreams of church, don't we? A place of like perfect Christian community, incredible love, perfect unity, we walk into the doors of the foyer and everyone's like, hey, how's it going? Hugs all around. Hey, I heard your car broke down. Here's 500 bucks. You know, the early church, they shared everything that they had. We have these dreams of perfect church that if I'm feeling down, someone's just going to sense it and phone me. Hey, how you doing? But then things go sideways in our life and it feels like nobody notices or we don't show up for a couple of months and nobody calls. It seems like nobody cares or even realizes who we are. And it's like, oh my goodness. You see, here's the reality is that in this place, we are all broken people. In this place, we all have varying ability and social skills. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says. God's grace quickly frustrates all such dreams. That's dreams of a perfect church. A great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate with ourselves, is bound to overwhelm us. As surely as God desires to lead us into an understanding of Christian community. You see, this room is full of people that are messed up. We all are. Can we own that? We're not all the best at loving people all the time. We say things that hurt people accidentally, sometimes on purpose. But you know what? It's no different than what Jesus had, and he doesn't hide any of it. Look at the list of his early church. There's Simon, who? The zealot. You know what that means? The terrorist. 
oh, this is Simon. He's in my church. He's a terrorist. And then there's, then there's Thomas, who's he, he doubts. He's coming to church, but the whole time he's like, I don't know, Jesus. I don't know about that, Jesus. Instead of saying amen, he's like, oh, I don't know about that. Then we have Judas. He betrayed him. He's in the early church. And what does he do? He commits suicide publicly. How is that church doing? Then there's Peter. He's the leader of the church. And he actually denies Jesus and goes back fishing. Leaves the whole thing. Gives up on it. Even the heroes of the faith. Moses killed a guy. There's no hiding that. Noah got drunk in a cave. Rahab, prostitute. David had an affair, killed a guy. Lot, he got his daughters pregnant. This is truth. And the Bible does not ever attempt to cover it up. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, he talks about, he includes five women who have very sketchy pasts. And he says, this is the church. This is Jesus' family. We're not going to even try to hide it. In fact, we're going to highlight it and say, come to the church We are all just as messed up as other people are. Remember Legion. This is a guy who's walking around naked in a graveyard, cutting himself with stones and screaming. I know what you're thinking. Make that guy a pastor. He's possessed with hundreds of demons. Jesus casts them out, and then what does Jesus do? He says, Legion, now go to your hometown and tell everybody, be a missionary, you're a pastor, Go for it, Legion. Imagine his social skills. What's he been doing for the last bunch of years? Punching people? Now, go and be a missionary? How did that go? How were his social skills at explaining the gospel? Not very good. People coming and hearing about Jesus from Legion are going to have some questions. And so now we have a room full of people who are saved by grace. Every one of us, we are all wonderful But we all were at one time sinners. And we all, to this day, wake up in a world that is full of sin. And we are called to walk in salvation and work it out daily. But we don't always do it perfectly, do we? And so lots of people say they've been hurt by the church. And that's true. Because any community you are in will hurt you. If you are in curling, you will be hurt by curlers. (laughs) That was a weird example. (laughs) But that's just reality. But what I love is that Jesus actually loves the church exactly as it is. Francis Chan in his new book says, this is why so many people feel like the church is optional. Like they'd rather connect with God on their own with all, all the weird people making it difficult. That's what he said. It's when we appreciate God's design for the church, understand it, begin to walk in it, that the church becomes the bride and beautiful. And today we're going to study God's word and his design for the church. It's laid out really simply. There was a young man, his name is K.P. Yohannan. And this was a young man in India, and he desired so badly to be a missionary. We have a picture of him there. There he is now. That's a good-looking guy right there. Look at that cross. I want to get one of those. This was a young man who just dreamed of being a missionary, but he was too young, and he wasn't accepted into the mission organization. So what he did is he went down to the, to the train station, and he got up on a concrete slab, and he started singing Sunday school songs. 
And a huge crowd gathered, and it's just this little guy singing. And once he had the crowd, he started preaching Jesus. And they said that this guy was leading hundreds to Jesus at these train stations. Guess what the mission organization did? They changed their mind and accepted him. He started to travel throughout India. In his book, he talks about how it looked like the book of Acts. The healings, the miracles were daily. There is so much spiritual warfare in India that he was casting out demons constantly. The stories of that are astounding. Every single town he went to, there was revival that broke out. And he paid dearly for this. He barely ate. He lost so much weight. And then in one town called Bundi, a bunch of the men grabbed him, dragged him outside of the town, and stoned him. He nearly died. He was paying dearly for this. He felt it was all worth it, though. And after a while, he decided he was going to revisit the cities that, that he had been in and, and strengthen the saints. We see the same thing that Paul did. But what he found was very different than what Paul found. As he went back, he went to these towns, and he said the gospel took no root. He said the people were just as possessed, just as much in sin as they were before. They had all returned back to their gods. He says, it is like nothing happened at all. The gospel didn't take root. And this is what he said. He said, in one town, I felt such deep despair. I literally sat down in a curb and sobbed. I wept the bitter tears that only a child can cry. Just imagine giving your life to something and see the gospel break out, getting stoned. And then it's all just gone. It's just vanished. And he quit. But then God just stirred something in him, and he went back, and he did the same thing. And guess what happened? The Holy Spirit showed up, but he did something very different this time. He planted churches. He said, I'm not doing that again. Revival broke out, and he planted churches. This is exactly what the disciples did. They received the Great Commission. This is the commission that we as a church have been given, and each one of you individually has been given to. You've heard it many times. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Wonderful. And then how did they do it? They went to a new town, and the first thing the disciples did was plant a church. That's what they did. They gathered communities. They created elders. They had the foundations that could actually support these brand new believers. This is what they did. Everything revolved around it. Listen to how they were told to heal people. In James, he says this, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Everything came back to the church. This was vitally important because in the book of Acts, there's so much stuff happening. And I'll tell you what, lots of cults were formed out of this time because the miracles were astounding. They actually thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods. <laughs> they thought they were. They thought they were Zeus and Hermes. There's all this crazy, weird Eastern religion mixed in with what was happening. 
And the disciples knew full well they needed to have the foundation of church and listen to the design. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This was what church looked like. And as we look at church today, if it doesn't fit the design of the church, if there's things that we add to make it our own that don't fit with exactly what God had in mind, then we need to say, do we do that? And if we're not doing some of these things, we need to say, we need to start doing that soon. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This was important. You see, every time they gathered, you know what they did? They would gather and the the guy would just read the Bible. That's it. The book of Matthew was the most popular book. This was a book that so clearly laid out the doctrines of Jesus. The book of Matthew was the most popular book in the first 200 years of the church. Every church had the book of Matthew. So when they finally canonized it, Matthew was the first because it was by far the most popular. So everyone had Matthew. You'd come to church, you'd read Matthew. One time the pastor might say, guess what? Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians and I have a copy. Because Paul, when he wrote letters, he said, when you're done with it, pass it along. So they would have a book of the Corinthians and they would read it out. Sometimes they wouldn't get another book like the book of Philippians and they would read it. But this is what they did because things they were witnessing, they had to test it against scripture and to make sure that what was happening was real because there's so much information out there. If you're to drive around Kelowna, you're going to see these magazine stands and two lovely people standing beside them. Am I right? These are Jehovah Witnesses and, and these stands are magazines and, and this is all the information that they have. And it's being communicated as this is the truth. One of them, I read, it just says, God's design for family. It talks about the end times. And all of these things, this is information, and and they're, they're passing it off as truth. There's these two great guys that came to my house, Jehovah Witness guys. And you know what? When they come to you and they want to talk to you, talk to them. They're lovely. They're, they're beautiful. And, and, and let them talk. And then when they're done, say, hey, can I tell you something? They don't know the book of Acts. Start to talk about the book of Acts. They've never heard about it. We talked for over an hour with these guys, and, and they were just like, so all of these things are happening in your church? I was telling them about all the miraculous that's breaking out. I told them about all just the new creation that I'm seeing, and they're just like, that doesn't happen in our church. <laughs> And I said, I know it doesn't happen in your church. You see, they have a a feeling that what they have is is truth, but it's not. Back in the early 1800s, this man named Charles Taze Russell started doing Bible studies. And what happened was, is that his church said, what you're teaching is not scripture. And they kicked him out, but this group of people kept gathering around him. And he got in a lot of trouble. His wife divorced him, charged him with forgery and fraud. And then he died right after that. But this group remained. This man named Joseph Rutherford, who hated Charles Taze Russell, he took over, and he hated him so much that he overturned every doctrine, changed it all. And this man was quite racist and made a lot of comments about colored people and demon possession. 
that he later changed, and that's why the watchtower can overturn any previous doctrine. To this day, the watchtower can overturn anything. And so as a result, everything that they now believe has been changed from the early roots. There's no doctrine that remains. It's not truth. And these lovely people don't know. They don't know. They just want community. They're just searching. They're just hungry. And so this is what they have. But the thing is, is that we as followers of Jesus, we do have truth. It's the word of God. And it has been unchanging. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were shocked to see that it's the exact same to what we have today. It has never changed. It never will because it's to the truth of God. And so we as a church, we gather, we study the word of God because it is the solid rock. It's our foundation. And so we have to do that as a body every single time. See, we're going to be witnessing things in our church as we grow in faith. We're going to say, how does that line up against Scripture? In the book of Acts, things were happening. Like this kid named Eutychus falls out of the window while Paul's preaching. That's hilarious. It's like if somebody fell off the balcony right now and died. We would all be like, whoa. Church is really interesting this morning. But then let's just imagine. I'm like, hey, you know what? I know what Paul did. Paul laid on the guy, which is what he did, prayed for him, and he came back to life. So let's imagine I do that. A guy falls, and I'm like, okay, don't worry about it, everyone. I'll handle this. And I go and lay on him. And his mom's like, get off. (laughs) This is weird. You see, this is how Luke starts the book of Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, who's the scribe, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. This is called the holy knot. John Calvin uses this term. It's two laces, what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. If we just have one lace, we'll get tripped up. It's not just the miracles and opinion. It is the truth of God, and we need both. We have to have both. A pastor in Africa decided it would be a great idea to show his church that they can have faith too and decided that he was going to walk on water. And he tried to. He obviously fell in because Scripture is clear to not put God to the test. And alligators ate him alive. <laughs> I'm not... Google it. It's, it's not funny. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> there is another church where the pastor decided, you know what? Paul was bitten by snakes on Malta. Remember that? He was lighting a fire and the snake came out and bit him and he never died and all the islanders were like, whoa. Actually, they brought Paul to, to, the, to the, like, the king's house and he actually healed him. Crazy things broke out on Malta. So a pastor brought a viper to church and had it bite him and died. You can Google that one. Imagine that happening here. Phil dies in front of everyone. What's going to happen the next Sunday? But here's the truth, is that all these things are in Scripture, but we got to think about what Jesus did and taught. And so as a body, we need to say, how does everything line up? We need, to be, we need to be students of the Word. See, Joseph and Mary lost Jesus for three days. Did you know that? Three days, they're supposed to be taking care of the King of Kings. And what happens? Oh, no, Joseph. Jesus is gone. We lost the Messiah. Great. So they backtrack, and they find him at the temple, and they said, Jesus, what are you doing here? And he says, didn't you know I'd be in the house of God? 
Didn't you know? You know why he said that? Because he spent nearly all of his time in the temple learning and teaching because corporate teaching was vital to Jesus and was vital to the early church. See, the early church would just meet and just eat up the scriptures. And let me really encourage you. Corporate teaching is very important. But Paul says, Paul says you need to move past milk, spiritual milk. You need to grow into maturity. Milk has been digested and processed by somebody else. And we need to be in the word ourselves because we need to grow into full maturity, not processed by somebody else. We need to be in it so that we can grow in our faith. Do you guys see what I'm saying by that? We need to be digesting meat. Or if you're a vegetarian, tofu or soy, whatever it is. They not only devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which they did a lot, but also fellowship. And I want you to imagine this. This was a church, and most of the people were being kicked out of their families. They were being disowned because of their faith in Jesus. And there was 24 different cultures. So they would gather as church, but there's people from all different cultures. They no longer have families. Jesus says, you are my children. What great love I have lavished upon you, that you're my children and now you're all brothers and sisters, and they're all looking at each other saying, I don't even know what this guy is saying. <laughs> this person over here is, is Greek, and, and Greek people back then were looked down upon. They had different holidays that the Jews thought were evil. They're like, we're not getting along at all. And they didn't. The early church had problems. Read in the book of Acts. In Acts 6, there were these Hellenized widows, these ladies who were being left out and, and not being taken care of. And finally, the church said, we need to take care of them. And they set up the first ministry in the church. I don't know if it had a name, but it was the Hellenized Widows Feeding Program. And you know what? It changed the world. Imagine at the temple. Jesus taught in the temple. And all of these priests... There were 18,000 priests. They heard him teach. Then Paul came and did the miraculous in the temple. All these priests heard all this. None of them, none of them changed. But listen to this. In Acts 16, 7, it said, So the word of God spread. This is after they started this feeding program. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. They actually left the temple and their steady jobs. They left everything because of how people were treated. It's our love for each other that will be our greatest testimony. As Jesus approached a town he found that there was a funeral pr procession and there was a dead boy being carried on a cot and his mom is behind the cot bawling her eyes out. This is in the town of Nain, so this would have been a Jewish woman. And she's bawling, she's just bawling and Jesus sees her and listen to this, Luke 7. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Jesus touched him and said, young man, get up. The boy got up he began to talk and walk, and, and he gave the boy back to his mom. It's beautiful. He said that his heart went out to her. This Greek word for this compassion, this is the strongest word that the author could have used. It's this Greek word, splanchizomai, and it means from the womb. <laughs> You're thinking, what? What? 
doesn't make any sense at all. Either I don't understand anatomy, or Jesus didn't have a womb. You see, splanchismai was a word that literally meant the love of a mother or a father. It's a word that you can only understand when you're looking into the eyes of your child. Splanchismai, you're my child. You just have a different part of your brain that turns on. It's a different love. You would die for this kid. And you just look at them as just the most beautiful thing in the world. You know, like when you look back at pictures of your kids, when you sent them out, you thought, oh, everyone's going to think my kid's the best-looking kid they've ever seen. Look how cute. And then you look back over, you know, 10 years, and you're like, actually, they just look like a baby, <laughs> like every other baby. But you had eyes of splanchismai for your kids. And this was Jesus. And this was a Jewish woman, not a follower, but Jesus loved her as his own daughter. On the cross, as they are spitting on him and beating him, he says, Father, forgive them. These are all my kids. He had splanchismai for them. This is Jesus. This is his posture. When Gandhi was a student in England, he was fascinated with Jesus. Gandhi wanted to know more about Jesus and showed up to a church. But the ushers refused to seat him. They told him to worship somewhere else with his own people. Can you believe that? Oh, this is the opposite of the heart of Jesus. They brought little children to him and he touched them. At that time, it meant, I, I receive you, I accept you. These kids weren't pre-screened. It wasn't like, oh, wait a second, you're, you're, oh, I can't touch you. You're not the same belief system. No, he touched them all. He didn't ask where they were from. Every person he touched, his splanchismai went to all of them. I just spoke to a girl who got pregnant and she is absolutely terrified. This is what she said to me. She said, I walked into church today and I look normal and nobody knows my sin, do they? And so they all just receive me perfectly. She said, but pretty soon it's going to start to show and pretty soon my sin is going to be out there for everyone to see. She just said, and this is what she looked at me, tears in her eyes. She said, are they going to reject me? Oh, You see, her sin will be evident for everybody. When Jesus approached an adulterous woman, her sin was out there. And all these men were around her. This was the Jewish law that a woman caught in adultery will be stoned to death. And, and they, wanted to, they wanted to enforce the law. They wanted to kill her. And Jesus shows up and, and they said, what should we do, Jesus? And he said something profound. He said, if you are without sin... You cast the first stone. You see, her sin was evident and her sin was known, but their sin was private, but it was still sin. They still lusted. These men were just as guilty as her. Jesus says that if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. You see, her sin was public and theirs was private, but Jesus says you're all the same. You see, in that culture, the woman got stoned, and what happened to the man? He just walked home like it never happened. Because his sin could be kept private. You see, we see people and condemn others for their obvious sin while ignoring our own. And Jesus was so 
just said, you know what? You're judging other people's speck in their eye when you have a log in your own. Paul had harsh words for the Romans. He said, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. He's saying the same thing. Their sin is public, but yours is private. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? Forbearance and patience, not realizing. Now listen to this. This is so critical. That kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. It is kindness that leads us to repentance. This is Jesus. Think about Zacchaeus. Jesus shows up and chooses Zacchaeus, says, I'm coming over for lunch. He chose him and pursued him. And what did Zacchaeus do? He repented. He said, I'll pay back everyone. It was kindness that led to repentance. In southern Iran, there was a lady named Somea. And she had a daughter named Reina. And, and Somea's husband was very abusive and beat her. And And one night, she received such a horrible beating that she said, even in that culture, she said, I'm divorcing you. And she left, and he flew into a rage. And one night in June 2011, as as they were laying there sleeping, Somea and Reina, he went into their home, and he poured acid on their faces, both of them, and burned them severely. So Maya was blinded permanently, and Raina lost one eye. This man was arrested, and he was sentenced to blinding. He was actually sentenced to have acid poured in his eyes, and it was supposed to be So Maya that did it, but in her blind state, she couldn't do it. And so her brother decided that he would do it, and, and all the men grabbed him and tied him up, and they gathered. Imagine this scene. This is, this is, this is astounding. And they're all gathered around him. And he is swearing at Somea. He is calling her names like you wouldn't believe. He's just losing his mind. And he has no remorse. And he's not sorry. And as they count down from ten. And the brother's there with the acid ready to blind him. Right as they get to one. She yells out no. She goes no. And she pardons him. And so they untie him. And you know what he does is he falls to his knees, goes to the feet of Somea, and starts kissing them, begging for forgiveness. See, grace creates genuine love. It's kindness that leads to repentance. And so God has allowed us to enjoy every person on earth, everyone, without feeling like we're approving of their lifestyle. Acts 10, he explains this. He says, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is the one who will judge the living and the dead. He doesn't minimize sin. He just clarifies who judges. And it's Him and it's not us. And this is beautiful because it frees us to love extravagantly without having to determine if they're worthy of it. We don't have to determine we just get to. We get to have splenchismi for everybody. Oh, 
Isn't that so wonderful? I love that. This is true fellowship. To look at each other like Jesus did. My, my daughter, my brother. That's totally different. My brother can go to my house right now, walk in, open the fridge, and make a sandwich. Am I right? Because he's my brother. My brother right now could call me and say, hey, I'm moving. I need to borrow your truck. And what am I going to say? Yeah, you're my brother. This is the way that it works. We go to my parents' house, and my kids just come home with stuff all the time because we're family. This is the way that we work with each other. If my brother is having a problem in his life, I feel it because he's my brother. I can't be happy when he's not happy. When we in this body are hurting, we hurt for each other because we're brothers and sisters. That's fellowship. And he commanded us as well to, to take bread and eat it and break it. And this is a radical statement. When we take communion, this is what we're saying. We're saying, you know what? I am just like the one that Jesus spoke about. I'm not without sin, and so I can't cast the first stone. In taking communion, I'm saying, I am broken. Jesus, thank you that you make me whole. And he is the bread of life. Listen to this metaphor. He chose to call himself the bread of life because those people needed bread every day to survive or they will die. They lived on bread. If they went one day without bread, they're going to start to starve. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You might go home after this and be so full of the Spirit and so happy, but you're going to wake up tomorrow in a state of spiritual starvation again because you need bread every day. He says, that's me every day. If I don't have communion with him by lunch, I'm going to start to feel hungry for him. And so I need to be in constant communion as much as I eat. He's the bread of life. Oh, So when we take communion, we're saying, you know what? I'm a sinner and I'm broken and I'm going to take in the bread of life who gives me life. Amen? That's good news. Because so often I think, you know what? There's so many things in this world that will satisfy me like wealth. We live in Kelowna. A nice car, the perfect house, that relationship. Oh, if I just had that relationship, I would be fulfilled. If I just had that job. If I just had that achievement, or if people looked at me this way, if my body looked that way, I will be so fulfilled. But when we take communion, we're saying, Jesus is my bread of life and makes me full. Nothing else. It's declaring He is my Lord. Nothing else is. Oh, He's my bread of life. And when we do this, it's another radical statement. We devote ourselves to prayer, communion with Him. Listen to what Francis Chan says about prayer. Prayer is not merely the task of ministry. This isn't what we just do to get stuff from God. It's the gauge that exposes our heart's condition. So if you're wondering, how do I know? How do I know how I'm doing with God? How do I know how much I'm trusting Him? How much you pray is your gauge. It unveils our pride, showing us whether we believe we are powerless without God. When we pray, it's an expression of surrender to God and reliance on His power. You see, God actually only works when we pray. If we try to do it on our own strength, God does not show up. See, it's not by our might or power, but by His Spirit. And prayer reveals this heart. And this was the victorious early church. They devoted themselves to teaching. 
to fellowship, to prayer and the breaking of bread. They were devoted. The Greek word for devoted there is the strongest possible word for devotion. It is this word, proskartario. It's a word that means this, to focus and to be fully committed to. Number one, everything else is second. They were devoted. Sometimes we think, you know what? They want me to go to church every Sunday and willow one prayer once a month. That's like five things a month. You see, they were going to the temple three times a day. Three times. Everything else in the world revolved around the temple schedule. When people ask what you're doing, it's like, okay, if it fits into what I'm already devoted to, which was the temple. And what he's saying here is be just as devoted to the church, to this family, to this body. It's devotion. Number one in my life. In Iran, if you want to join the church, you have to sign a statement. And the statement clarifies. It says, you must be willing to give up your property. You must be willing to be thrown in jail, and you must be willing to be a martyr. Sign it. <laughs> it's kind of like, wow, what a crazy church this is. But guess what? Iran has the fastest growing Christian population in the world. Did you know that? They surpassed China. Iran, because of their devotion. And I believe that God is calling us to greater devotion. The Desert Fathers had a really interesting saying. It says, one Christian is no Christian. If a man doesn't have the church as his mother, he can't have God as his father. Whoa! That's devoted. We need to love the church and care for her and build her up and speak well of her. Listen to what Paul says. Phil talked about this last weekend. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. Oh my goodness. Imagine somebody saying that to you today. God will destroy you if you destroy his temple. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. This is a divisive statement. We tend to view church as a location, like this building, or a staff team, like these, this is our staff, these are our ministries, this is what we do, we do living nativity, but that's not the church, we are his church, we are the temple, and we are sacred, but the irony is that the church isn't destroyed from the outside, it's destroyed from the inside, it's destroyed from within us. You see, we live in a time where we're trained to be critical, where we go on a vacation and then we have to rate the hotel we use an Uber, we have to rate the experience. We're on Facebook, and we either like it or we don't. Same with Instagram. Everything in the world today is telling us, rate your experience. Before we watch a movie, I always look at the ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. I do it. But the problem is, is that we do this to church, and we naturally critique sermons and worship and decisions that are made, and we critique other people, and we just walk in with just the same attitude that we bring to other things. Francis Chan says, we point out the flaws in our pastor's sermon with the same conviction that we critique a movie star's acting or our favorite team's recent loss. Could it be that we're taking a sledgehammer to the temple in doing so? See, the temple is sacred. And we in this room are the very 
temple, the body of Christ. In John 15, he says to love each other as Christ has loved us. That's, that's high, high ideal. And then he says this, and then he says, I will prune you so you will bear more fruit. He's saying, I will prune you so that you will have more love for each other. But here's what happens when, when God starts to prune the church. You know what happens? People leave and go to another church. And here's the result of that. Is we restrict the fruit being produced in our lives. We restrict the love that we have for each other. And we create weak churches. You see, God prunes us because he loves us. And he desires that we grow in love for each other. But so often what happens in a winter season is people leave to a different summer season at a different church. And as a result, what happens when that church goes through their fall, all of a sudden there's just a restriction of growth. We weren't created for that. We were created for times of pruning and growth. This is how God made us. And I'll tell you what, I've been at this church for 20 years. And I have seen a lot of pruning. I have seen many seasons. And right now it feels like we are in a beautiful spring. And God is just doing wonderful things. But I promise you this. God will be pruning us again. He will. There will be times where, where, where we're just like, you know what? I don't know about that church anymore. And there's so much temptation But God is saying, I'm pruning you because I love you, and I want you to be devoted to each other, to have splanchismai, to walk through seasons. So we need to love the church. We need to speak well of her. It's the very instrument of God. We need to not just speak well of each other, to love splanchismai in this room, but of other churches, and never, ever take a sledgehammer to those temples to speak well of them and bless them. When they do well, we need to say, thank you, Jesus, for the fruit over there. Pray for them. Bless them. When they're going through hardship, we don't need to have this feeling of like, oh, you see, I knew it. It needs to be, oh, those are my brothers and sisters. Let's bless them. Let's pray for them. Let's build them up. This is the body of Christ. And I'm going to encourage you to be just devoted And that is when God is going to break out. And be devoted to the apostles' teaching in your own life. Just get into it. Be devoted to fellowship. Treat your possessions as being everybody's. Be devoted to the breaking of bread that Jesus is the bread of life. And be devoted to prayer. It's our gauge on how we're doing. We're going to worship. And I'm just going to to really um, encourage you. As we worship, and if God has laid anything on your heart, to just simply make a declaration to him right now and just say, God, these are things that I need to readjust in my heart. These are areas that I need to be devoted in. And just between you and him, just say, this is, where I, this is who I want to be from this point forward. Let's pray. Father, God, you love your bride. <laughs> God, you love us, and you've chosen to make this body full of messed up people your temple. God, the city on a hill, God, that you're proud of us, that you want to show the world and say, look at, this is my beautiful bride. Look at her. Look at, she's pure and spotless. Look at her.
Jesus, help us fall in love with your church, God. God, give us a deep love, God. God, I pray for the work of KP Johannan right now, God, in India. God, with his churches, God, I pray that they would flourish. God, I pray that we would just see massive revival in India, God. Thank you that you've given us a small part in India. God, I pray for, I pray for the Jehovah Witnesses in Kelowna. God, they're searching and they're hungry. And you are the bread of life. And you are the way and the truth and the life. God, I pray that you'd use us to view them as brothers and sisters and love them and lovingly show them the way of Jesus, God. God, give us a heart for them. God, they're sitting out there with their stands in the freezing cold. God, I pray that we would look at them and pray for them. They're wonderful. God, I pray for, for those of us in this room who feel like, like we've been exposed as sinners. God, I pray that there would just be this beautiful sense of peace, God, that we're all in the same boat and so none of us condemn. You say in John 3.17 that you didn't come to the world to condemn it, but to save it, to point out our sin and with kindness lead us to repentance, Father. God, I pray for those of us in this room who are struggling with, with secret sin, God. I pray that your kindness would draw us to repentance. God, I pray for, for those of us who are struggling with pornography, God. You say that you have a way that's better and that you would draw us with loving kindness right now, God. God, with drinking too much, God, your kindness leads us to repentance with envy, with discontentment over our spouse. Father, lead us to beautiful repentance, God. I pray that your spirit right now would just, God, remind us that we are wonderful, that your plan for us is, is so much more than we could ever imagine for ourselves. Father, we worship you now.